don't have a Bible, there are men that are coming up the aisle right now with Bibles. And if you just get their attention, they'll get one into your hands. It'll make it a lot easier for you to follow along. We cover some territory on these Sunday evenings, and, and you want to follow along with your own eyes and, and what it is that we're studying and, uh, and uh, together. Now, while we're finding our place here in Second Samuel chapter 13, I uh, did receive a... Um, email this week that was representative of a a very angry group out there in our community. Uh, I noticed it on my email uh, subject line was Prius uh, versus a a pickup truck. And it went something like this. Uh, Damien, no pastor, Damien, no respect. There's no respect in this. I felt it necessary to tell you that I took exception to your comment about bumper stickers on Priuses. As a latte-sipping, Prius-driving elitist, I found your comment negative and distasteful. We elitists don't like to be mentioned in the same sentence as pickup truck drivers, let alone to be compared to them. So should you have any further urges to drag our names through the mud in the future, please seek the Lord first. I'm sure he'll be happy to set you straight on who you mess with. After all, we elitists are favorite children of course try to have a good day it was uh, initial sign and then ps can i borrow your pickup truck to move some furniture this week listen it's not easy pastoring this church the broad diversity that's found in it last week as we have been following david's life God has uh, confronted him concerning his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then his uh, murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite, uh, endeavoring uh, to cover up his sin. And of course, none of us are going to get away with sin as God's people because you can cover it up in front of people, but God knows everything. And so what David had done, the Lord had witnessed and it had greatly displeased him. The Lord showed David great grace in um, not basically not having him executed because he had committed two capital crimes, according to the law of Moses, in terms of what he did, both in murdering and then also in adultery. But the Lord did speak to David that there would be consequences related to his sin that he would have to bear for the rest of his life and and which to commend him. And and I have the highest respect for David. Um, He bore up uh, under those consequences, and and he he handled them like a man. We come now to some of those consequences this evening as we come to chapter 13, and God had spoken of the fact that a sword would come into his family, and as a result of his sin, there would be great problems within his family. I don't think it's so much a fact that God jumped in and said, I'm going to begin to orchestrate great difficulty between uh, your, your children and the ch- your children in their relationship with one another and your children in their relationship uh, with you as much as it was a case that David had kind of fallen so far in his drifting into sin and his um, losing sight of what are God's priorities in life, including the oversight of his family that God looked and said, what you've done with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite is simply, uh, that just happens to be the flashpoint. Your life is, has been going sideways for a while, and, and as a result of it, uh, he wasn't discipling those children the way that he should have, and now they've reached adult life, and it's a little tough to disciple them at that point. And so um, these things are, uh, his, his failure on some other fronts are, are kind of, uh, you know, coming to to maturity here. And all of this begins to uh, surface. In chapter 12, God spoke of, and it was God's grace. I'm so glad that God leaves his fingerprints of grace around our failure. I know we all fail. We do. If you don't, well, I I wouldn't let you have the pulpit next week because you're a dirty liar. So we all fail. We're all less than, than Christ. And uh, the more sensitive our heart toward the Lord and the more we want to be like Christ, the more that even things that might, people might look at as being comparatively small, they hurt us. 
And so God had spoken to him and said, I'm going to give you a son out of this relationship between you and Bathsheba. I'm going to honor this marriage and I'm going to bless you because I don't want the act of adultery to be the final word in your relationship. I'm going to give you a son. And David named him Solomon, which means peace. And the Lord named him Jedidiah, which means uh, beloved of the Lord. And God kind of hinted in, to David that this this boy of all your boys is going to become one day the king of Israel to follow you. Now, Solomon's not going to be mentioned. All the rest of, of Second Samuel be, will be reintroduced in his story and in first Kings. But our attention is directed now to the two older sons of David, a man by the name of Amnon and, uh, and a man by the name of Absalom. And Amnon was the eldest son uh, who would have been expected to take David's place as as king in due course. Absalom was David's third son. As we look at earlier genealogies concerning all of this, he would have been a third in line technically to become king, uh, except for the fact that the second son that is listed in the genealogies between the two of them, we never hear about at all. So it's believed that uh, perhaps he died somewhere in the course of things. So what you have is David is king. Amnon is next as the oldest son to follow him as king. If, you know, traditions according to the ancient world were to be adhered to, and then Absalom would have followed uh, followed him. And so this is uh, this is how we pick things up and kind of a little bit of an understanding of of what's happening here. And after this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. So here are some of the complications that David introduced into his family by having multiple wives and that he's got a, a bunch of half brothers and sisters that are in the family. There is a um, uh, uh, Tamar and, and uh, Absalom. They both came. Uh, Tamar is described as being very beautiful here, very attractive young woman. She and uh, Absalom were full brother, sister, the daughter of Maacah, and Amnon was the son of uh, Ahinoam, the woman from Jezreel. And so this is the relationship that they have with one another. They are blood related, each one of them on their father's side. We're told here that uh, uh, Amnon, the son of David, was in love with Tamar. We're going to see he, this is a man that doesn't know anything about love. Uh, he is in lust with Tamar, and I don't know if you could give him that high of a, a term for what it is that, that he felt toward her and would ultimately express to her. So he was in love with her, and Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin. She was unmarried. She was available for marriage as a result, as a king's daughter, and we're told why he was sick and distressed over all of this, because it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. The problem that he had is, is that because she was a close blood relative, because she was a half sister, the law of Moses prohibited the marrying of a blood relative that was that close. So he thinks he's in love with her. He wants to be involved with her. But the law of Moses says there's there's no way for that to happen. And thus it was improper for him to do anything with her. Leviticus chapter 18, verse nine, the nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. The other problem that he has here in his attraction to her and wanting to be involved with her is that because she was a virgin and a virgin daughter of the king, she didn't he didn't have even as the son of the king have direct access to her and that culture, a very, very modest culture. And so she probably would have been kept in large part behind closed doors. Uh, when she did go out into public, it would have only been with a very significant uh, escort. And so uh, he has no chance of getting alone with her to communicate anything uh, to her. So here he has he's got two contrary things that are happening in his life. 
He is attracted to her. He feels that he is in love with her on the one hand. But the law of Moses very clearly says he cannot have her, cannot marry her and have a relationship with her. And so you've got these two contrary things, the desire of his flesh and then what the law of God says. They are are so contrary to one another that one is going to prevail and the other is going to go by the wayside or the other is going to prevail and and, and the, the, the other one is going to go by the wayside. These two kind of things that are going on inside of him, they can't. Uh, survive at length in his life because they're they're uh, uh, they 're incompatible completely uh, incompatible now at this point in time in amnon 's life where here he has an emotion here he has a desire in his heart for something that the law of God clearly prohibits, this was a great time. For a godly friend to show up in his life and tell him, Amnon, what in the world are you thinking about? You can't go against the clear word of God and prosper. She's not available to you. God prohibits it. So take that out of your mind as any kind of a possibility and move on with your life. That's what this man desperately needed. But the problem is... Someone else is going to come into his life that doesn't have that kind of respect for the word of God, that kind of godly character. And he's going to come in and he's going to uh, try and come up with a plan that helps Amnon uh, have his way with Tamar. And so the friend is introduced and he's more than a friend. He's also a blood relative, a cousin of Amnon. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab. Don't ever name your child Jonadab. This guy's a no good. The son of uh, Shimea, David's brother. Now, Jonadab was a very crafty man. Aren't you sick of crafty men? I'm so sick of crafty men and wordsmiths and manipulators and con men. They're all around us. Better to be a godly man. Better to be a righteous man. Better to be a holy man. That's what we need today in our culture. In whatever sphere of influence that God has put you in, whether it's school or in a workplace or in a neighborhood, for us to be that kind of a man or woman. And here we've got a crafty man. We don't need any more crafty men. And so he said to Amnon, why are you the king's son? You can stuff your face with food every day, is the king's son. Why are you becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? So he notices that uh, Amnon is losing weight over this great thing that's happening inside of him, this desire and this fight and, and this battle. He's distressed to the point of, of sickness. And so as the king's son, he can have anything he wants, anyone he wants. What, is it, what in the world is going on with you? And Amnon then reveals it to him. Amnon said to him, I love Tamar. My brother Absalom's sister. And so Jonadab, this is the response. Jonadab should have said, are you out of your ever-loving mind? Whatever an ever-loving mind is. But he should have just pulled him up and just read him the riot act. Rebuked him. He doesn't do that. So Jonadab said to him, here's what you need to do to get close to her. Lie down on your bed. Pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, apparently David was in the custom of going to visit his children when he discovered they were ill. Your father David's going to come. He's going to come and see you. What can I do for you, son? And you say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me food. And obviously he's wasting away physically, and so this would make sense. And prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and I I may eat it. Uh, from her hand. And so this is the plan that Jonadab gives to Amnon to get uh, Tamar alone. If you have any friend, friends should be in quotes in that verse, or you have any family member who calls themselves a Christian or not, but this guy is among the Jews, he's supposed to be a child of God who claims to know God 
and their influence in your life is that they love you more than God and that they will help you plan the means by which you can attain to your fleshly forbidden desires rather than pulling you up and rebuking you, as the Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. This was time for wounding. And instead, this man who knew better because of his godly uh, heritage comes up and gives him a plan for getting Tamar alone, and it's going to end up in a rape. Sometimes when we listen to a sermon, I think, or we listen to a Bible study, we can just think, well, this is the, a Bible study, and this is something that you do in a church, and this is something that preachers say. The number of men and women who are in jail tonight and in prison tonight, the number of men and women, both young and old, who are not in prison, but their lives have been largely destroyed because they came under the influence of an ungodly friend who encouraged them in their sin and in their lust rather than repenting of it and obeying what God's Word said. This is real. This is today. This is in this room. This is in our city. And every single one of us are going to face this kind of thing in our life. I have pastored long enough to have talked with plenty of people who have been in a situation where, yes, it is going to be very hard on them to say no to their flesh, to say no to a particular path or direction in life. It won't be easy. I don't minimize that. But they need to do it because God's Word clearly says you cannot go in that direction. It's forbidden. And when they go to friends, they go to family members, even those that profess to know Christ, they are supplied with plots and excuses for how to get around the very clear teaching of the Word of God concerning that issue. And then when the child or the person becomes a casualty of the decision, it's too late to change. What's happened is a result. If you have a friend in your life tonight, I don't care how old or young we are, if you have a family member in your life tonight who encourages you in doing whatever your flesh wants to do, engage in whatever sin you want to do, provide you with an attempted legitimacy for doing what violates the Word of God, Get away from that relationship. I call on you. Get away from that relationship. Get away from that influence. There is no way that either Jonadab or maybe even Amnon at this point or anyone could have looked at and said this little plot that Jonadab gives to Ammon is going to end in a rape. It's going to end in two deaths in David's family of his sons, and yet this is the way the whole thing kind of unfolds, not just 3,000 years ago, but today. The Bible says we're to, we're to surround ourselves with people who call upon the Lord out of a pure heart. You know who Paul wrote that to? He wrote that to a young man who was already godly, but needed to hear it anyway. Because no matter how godly we are, we need to hear that. He wrote that to Timothy, a pastor he was discipling in his ministry. All of us have to be careful of these influences. You know the challenges that I face as a pastor? Almost everything I have to talk about in this very difficult season in David's life, I know creates great pain for a significant block of the people that are sitting in this room because they're on the wrong side of decision-making, have been in the past in their life. They know the hard way about the truth of this. 
And yet there's another group within the room that haven't hit those forks in the road yet. And so these passages have to be taught with their strength so that they make the right decision when they're faced with the same temptations and circumstances as these Old Testament saints. Get away from those kind of people. You don't need them, and God doesn't intend you to be under their influence. And so Amnon, he, he made this request to David, and David, he doesn't have any reason to suspect that um, the... Uh, anything terrible is going to happen here. And so David sent home to Tamar and he said, now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. Now, let me say something in Jonadab's uh, behalf here and in, in, in fairness to him, though he he advises Amnon on how to lure Tamar into his house and to keep her there for a while. He never mentions uh, rape. He might have just been talking about how to get an audience with her. But the, the plain fact of the matter is that relationship could go nowhere under the law of Moses. He had no right in, in doing that. Even he, I don't think, realized what was in Amnon's heart. But he would have never played into this whole thing if he had been an influence for righteousness in, in speaking the, the right thing to begin with. And so Tamar was sent there and she went to her brother Amnon's house. She is the picture of innocence. God bless her. And he's lying down and apparently he's in his bedroom. There's a great archway that opens up evidently out into a much larger room where the cooking goes on. And there are attendants and others that servants that are are there in place. And so here is Tamar. She's making these cakes in 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 his sight and, and baking the cakes. And she took the pan and she placed them out before him. But he refused to eat. And so Amnon then said from the other room, evidently, have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him. And then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat it from your hand. He's he's so sick and so weak as he's playing this whole thing out. And Tamar innocently took the cakes, which she had made, and she brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. And when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. So he grabs a hold of her arm. He's stronger than her, won't release her. And and he calls on her to become involved with him uh, physically here. And she answered him, no, my brother. Do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. Too bad Jonadab didn't have that in his heart. The chapter might not be in the book. And then she begins to warn him. This is a wise, godly young woman. She begins to warn him of the thing that he's not thinking clearly about, and that is the consequences of where his decision is about to take him. In terms of the consequence on her, she said, and I, where would I take my shame if you do this to me? This violation in that ancient culture would essentially made her, uh, left her unmarriable, even as a king's daughter, because she had already been uh, violated. So she's saying, you know, think of, uh, think of what this is going to do to me. It's going to shame me. This is a disgraceful thing that you're going to do. It'll leave me without any chance of marriage or having uh, any children. And for a woman in that culture, basically that would be to ruin the rest of, of her life. And as for you, she tells her, him about the consequences that are about to come on him if he continues his foolishness. You will be like one of the fools in Israel. In other words, his entire future is going to be ruined because if he does this, this is how he's going to be viewed by the rest of the nation. Think about what this man is about to throw away. By virtue of lineage, he is to become the king to follow David. And he's going to throw all of that away. And she is trying to get him to, in essence, saying, you will never, ever be the king. This nation, this godly nation will never accept you if you do this thing. 
So she's really saying some forceful things to get him to think about what he's about to throw away. And now, therefore, she proposes, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me uh, from you. So here she tries to, as she says, listen, don't do this. Ask for my hand in marriage. Let's do all of this uh, the, the right way here. Go to the king. He won't withhold me from you. And I'm inclined to believe that she didn't believe this for a moment, didn't want it for a moment. What she's basically trying to do is say whatever she can say to get out of that situation. And if he had released her on the basis of that, I'm sure she would have never seen his face. uh, uh, He would never have seen her face ever again. She is trying to buy time to find a way of escape out of the situation. And so she proposes this. However, he would not heed her voice. And being stronger than her, he forced her and he lay with her. Essentially, he rapes her. And then Amnon hated her the moment he was done exceedingly so that the hatred with which he hated her was even greater than the love or the lust with which he had lusted for her. And Amnon said to her, arise, be gone. Ladies, and I say young ladies, I think in particular. If you don't know that there are guys like this that exist, you need to know. If he won't wait until you're married to become involved physically with you, you are dealing with a man who loves himself way more than he loves you. This is not a man that's looking for a wife to nourish and to cherish and to take care of. This is a man who is just looking to satisfy himself. And there's this kind of a person where I don't think they have the capacity to love somebody for him. The guy like this, it's all the chase. It's all the conquest. It's just moving from one to the other, to the other, to the other. And you've got to realize there's guys like this that exist. And you don't want to be caught in their trail. So he hates her after he's done. And now he wants her to be gone. And she says to him, no, indeed. This evil of sending me away, now having done this to me without being willing to marry me, this is worse than what what you did to me. And so, But he would not listen to her. And then he called his servant who attended him, and he said, Here, put this woman out away from me and bolt the door behind her. Wouldn't listen to her. And she had on a robe of many colors, which signified her to be a daughter of King David. For the king's virgin daughters, they wore that such apparel. And his servant put her out and bolted the door. Ka-chunk! Behind her. I mean, her life has been ruined in one hour. And then Tamar put ashes on her head. Sign of mourning. She tore her robe, which signified her to be a virgin eligible for marriage. She knew that was over. That was on her. She laid her hand on her head and went away from the door crying bitterly. I mean, just inexpressible grief that she is experiencing at that moment in time. I mean, all of her dreams, all of her hopes, all of her future just gone. But I think that one of the things that she's doing here also is not just is an expression of her heart over what has just happened in her life. But she does these things even before she leaves Amnon's doorway because when she makes her way back to wherever she's living in the king's palace, she wants everybody to know, see these marks of mourning that she put on before she left the house, lest anyone thinks that she consented to what had happened there. Now notice the aftermath of all of this. Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? He understands what it is that's happened. He said, now hold your peace, my sister. In other words, let's avoid a public scandal here. He said, he is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. In other words, what he's saying to her is, you had every right to be trusting 
of him in that environment. You're not responsible for what's happened in there. No one could have conceived that a brother would have done this to you. So there's that whole thing of, you know, feeling responsible and all of that. And and Absalom consoles her on this. And when David and so Tamar remained desolate, probably unmarried for life in her brother Absalom's house. When David heard of all these things, he was very angry. That was his reaction. He's the father of both the children that are involved. That's a terrible place for any parent to be. He's the father of that boy. He's the father of that that daughter. And he has this great emotional response to what happens. He becomes very angry. The problem is he didn't do anything about it. And David's not the last father to have that kind of a tendency or some kind of a great violation or even a small problem that occurs. And we can have a tendency to blow up, have this emotional, you know, explosion related to the thing and think that we have solved something as a result of it. And the fact of the matter is something has happened here where it was required that a father would step in now and do something in the light of what it is that, that happens here. And what David ought to have done, according to the law of Moses, is that if a man takes his sister, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 17, if a man takes his sister, his father's daughter or his mother's daughter, and sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it's a wicked thing. And they shall be cut off in the sight of their people, and he has uncovered his sister's nakedness, he shall bear his guilt. That's talking about consensual sex. That's not even talking about rape. And some people believe that the law of Moses was teaching that this penalty referred to death. Other be, others believe and, and uh, that it refers to whoever is guilty here of, of being banished forever from among his people. But it's clear, at the very least, David should have made it clear that these actions of Amnon had disqualified him from ever becoming king or having any, any position of influence the nation of of Israel, I think some exile on on top of it. It's very possible that David failed to respond forcibly to Amnon's sin because it was the same sin that he had committed against Bathsheba, which brings us to a very important lesson as parents, as Christian parents, the standard for good and bad and right and wrong that we teach our children and that we enforce in our children is the Bible. The standard of good and bad and right and wrong and appropriate behavior is not what we were when we were their age. And many of us didn't know the Lord. And there's a funny thing that can happen where there is a pressure that sometimes parents can feel, not all of them, but some of them feel that that because they, you know, gave into these temptations when they were a certain age or they, you know, their parents said yes to all of these kind of things that now when their children are wanting to do the same thing or are doing the same things, that there's nothing that they can say that it would be hypocrisy for to deny their children what it is that they had once done. That's all backwards. Right and wrong is determined by the word of God. It gives us a... It puts us in an authority structure under God in terms of raising our children. The authority structure of the Christian home is God is, is, is the head in terms of authority. The husband is next. The wife is next. And then the children. And so the, the father and the mother are under God's authority. They're not free to redefine right and wrong but to enforce God's definition of right and wrong related to the children. And when the children want to rebel against that, then you say you're going to have to take it up with God. And he knows how to talk to me. 
And so if you think I'm wrong and you're right, talk to God about it and he'll get me turned around. And by the way, here are the 140 verses that prove that you're wrong. That's just how it worked in our. I'm just kidding. We must never, ever lower the standard of God's word in dealing with our children and our home because we've been guilty of some sin earlier in our lives. Because if we do that, here's what happens. Then every generation gets worse than the previous generation. And you end up in a nation like we're in, where the spiral is just downward, downward, downward. As parents, we need to realize, and David should have realized, the Bible teaches that our children are a heritage from the Lord. They belong to God first and to us second. They've been entrusted to us to raise in the things of the Lord. The Bible says, train up a child in the way that they want to go. No, it doesn't say that. Say, where's that? It says, train up a child in the way they should go. And when they're older, they won't depart from it. And to realize, I have been given you by God to raise according to God's standard, no matter what I've been or I haven't been earlier in life, and not to fall prey to guilt in that, that area. So important to learn that from David's mistake so that we don't make the same mistake. Now, the effect of all of this that happened uh, uh, upon Absalom was very, very great in verse 22. Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad. That was it. He never said another word to him. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. Now, I've got some real problems in this family. And David makes a great mistake here because he does not chasten Amnon in the way that he should. Absalom becomes bitter, not just against Amnon, but against his father for failing to deal with the situation. And Absalom's bitterness and hatred of his father is just going to grow and grow and grow. And a large part of it, it starts right here. His father did not step in and do what was right in the situation. And, Am and Absalom is going to give his father a full year to do the right thing before he takes the law into his own hands, which he shouldn't have done. But he, he, he is put in a place that no child should be put in because of the uh, uh, lack of the father stepping in and doing what the father ought to have done. And it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And so Absalom, he invited all of the king's sons. So sheep shearing for the rancher was what the harvest was to the farmer. It was a time of great celebration for how good the year had been. And so Absalom, he comes to his father and uh, he uh, invites his, his father David to come to this sheep shearing. And he said, kindly note, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants, all of your sons, go with your servant, speaking of himself, to enjoy this celebration. And and. And the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. I'm inclined to think that Absalom didn't think his father would take him up on this invitation. But David, he declines and he doesn't you know, want to do it. And then he urged him, but he wouldn't go. And but David then blessed him, you know, have a great time, have a great celebration. And uh, I'm just not going to be able to make it. And Absalom said, well, if you can't go, then let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? So it's kind of gets his curiosity. Now, it isn't entirely odd that Absalom would ask for Amnon to come to this feast because Amnon, if David isn't going to come, then the second, the, the one who is heir to the throne would be the next person that you would want in terms of prominence. And so Absalom gives the appearance that this is his purpose behind it. And uh, Absalom urged him. So 
David let Amnon and all of the king's son go with him. And Absalom had commanded his servants, and he said, Watch now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon. In other words, he's gotten a little tipsy, and he's letting his guard down. You can be sure his guard was up. Then uh, when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Don't be afraid, even though he's the king's son. I'm the king's son also. I'll take care of you. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. And so the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. And then all of the kings arose and each one got on his mule and fled. Never seen mules move as quick as probably that. Now, the reason they go kind of running out of there like their hair is on fire is they don't know if Absalom's going to kill every son of the king. So they don't know whether this is like a violent overthrow of, of all of the heirs of David. And so they are literally running for their life. And it came to pass when they were on the way, the news came to David saying, Absalom has killed all the king's son, sons and not one of them is left. Can you imagine hearing that report? What must have happened inside of him? And David arose and he tore his garments, his, picturing his heart's been torn in two. And he lay on the ground as the king just collapses to the ground. And all the servants stood by with their clothes torn. And then Jonadab, the son of Shimea, this guy again, David's brother, answered and he said, Let my, not my Lord suppose that they have killed all the young men. The king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. I wonder what it was like for him to say that. And now, therefore, let not my lord the king take the thing to heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. And then Absalom fled. He ran for his life. He didn't know how his father would respond to him taking the law into his hands, which he shouldn't have done, and, and killing his brother. So he ran for his life. And the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked. And there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming. As for your as your servant said, so it is. And so it was as soon as he had finished speaking that the king's sons indeed came. They lifted up their voice and wept. Also, the king and all of his servants wept very bitterly. This was a terrible, terrible loss. He, he loved his son, Amnon. They all loved Amnon. But Absalom fled and he went to Talmai, the son of uh, Ahimud, uh, Am. Amihud, king of Geshur. So he flies, uh, he flees off to uh, this man by the name of Talmai in the region of Syria. This is his grandfather on his mother's side. So uh, she was a Gentile. So he flees there to find refuge with the other side of the family. And this grandfather would have been very happy to supply him with uh, a, with uh, a um, a refuge, even though he had killed Amnon because of of the the killing of uh, because of what he had done to, to his blood relative uh, Tamar, and David mourned for his son every day. We don't know whether it's Amnon or Absalom, probably Amnon. And so Absalom fled and he went to Geshur and he was there for three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. So after three years, he has uh, come to grips with the death and the circumstances of it. He's processed it and he's lost the one son and he's dealt with the pain of that. And now he doesn't now he realizes he's lost another son, probably to to fleeing, probably as a result of his own weakness as a father. And he, and he desires some kind of a, of a reconciliation here with with Absalom. And that's his desire. And so Joab, the son of Zeruiah, who was a, the general of the Israeli army there the, of, of Israel, also a blood relative of David, he perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom, that he wanted to have this relationship once again 
with his son. And so Joab set up a, a kind of a ruse or play acting in order to uh, accomplish this. And so he sent to Tekoa. Uh, a city that's just a few miles south of Bethlehem, so within walking distance of, uh, of uh, Jerusalem. It was the hometown of Amos the prophet. And so Joab went to Tekoa, and he brought from there a wise woman. So she's real smart. She's quite an actress, as we're going to see in just a moment. He needed to have somebody. He's going to try and trap David in the sense that he's going to try and get David to... Um, Make a ruling that that. Well, we might as well just read it, shouldn't we? If it's going to be that much effort for me, but he needed a pretty sharp gal and someone who if David began to suspect that they were doing this thing to him, she could be quick on her feet and take care of things. And we're going to see this woman could she could take care of herself in any situation. And so. He brought from there a wise woman, probably, you know, uh, he knew from somewhere that, that this was the kind of, she had it. She's the perfect gal for this. He said, I know right where to find her. So he said to her, this is the plan. Please pretend to be a mourner. Put on mourning apparel like you've, you've lost a loved one. And don't anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who's been mourning a long time for the dead. And I want you to go into the king and speak to him in this manner. And so Joab told her the whole story that was she was supposed to, to tell him. And then when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she comes into David's presence and she falls down on her face to the ground and, and uh, uh, prostrated herself before the Lord. And she said, help, O king. Now, it wasn't unusual. This was part of David's responsibility as a king that um, if there were. The hardest cases, he was kind of like the Supreme Court of the nation of Israel. If people were not satisfied with the judgment or the handling of their cases by the judges in Israel, they could they could appeal up. They could like appeal to Caesar. But here they could appeal to David for David to hear their case. And so that's what she's doing. Later on, we're going to see Absalom is going to accuse David of you know, being insensitive to the people. He doesn't put any judges out here for you to bring your cases to and all this stuff. And he's going to make it look like David doesn't care about people and all. And we see here, David cares a lot about people. I mean, he is still entertaining these cases one at a time in, in his schedule as he runs the nation. So she falls down and she just pleads for the king's help. And the king said to her, what troubles you? It's just great sensitivity and a, a heart toward, toward her. Powerless, she means nothing to him on, on a, you know, a purely natural level. But this is the heart of David. And she answered, she said, here's my story. I'm a widow. My husband is dead. Now, that's bad news for a woman in the ancient world. Because your husband was your security for a livelihood. Now, your maidservant had two sons. And the two of them fought with each other in the field. And there was no one to part them. They just started slugging it, who knows what and everything. And this was a Donnybrook, the fight they got into. And nobody was there to cool their heads to prevail. And the one struck the other and they killed them. It wasn't premeditated, but it was, a, it was a murder, homicide, just the same. And now the whole family, so now she's got a, a, a dead husband, one of her sons is dead, and now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant, and they've said, deliver this remaining brother who struck his brother and killed him, that we may execute him according to the law of Moses for the life of, of his brother, for killing his brother whom he killed. And we will destroy the uh, heir also. So now they want to enact capital punishment on the remaining son. And she said, so they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave to me uh, my husband neither name nor remnant in the earth. David would understand this was a serious situation this woman's in. There's no, no social security in the ancient world. There's no retirement plans. Your family was your retirement. It was your social security in old age. So she's lost the husband. She's lost one son. She's about to lose her final son. So she's looking at the poorhouse. And then in addition to that, with the death of this second son will mean the end of the, the family name of her husband. And it was a big deal among the Jews 
for their name to continue on through the sons because nobody knew who God was going to, what family God was going to bring the Messiah into the world through. Might be our family name, so we don't want our name extinguished. So this was a big thing. In, in Jewish history, this name, this lineage, this family was going to be just like you put out a, a candle. It's going to be extinguished. And the king said to the woman, go to your house and I'll give orders concerning you. In other words, he, he's telling her that he's going to intervene on her behalf. Everything's going to be OK. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, my Lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house and the king and his throne be guiltless. She's good. She is setting him up for such a kill. I know women are smarter than men. I, I know it for a fact. Manipulators one. I'm just kidding. So she's she's sharp. And I and I hold to my my earlier comments. I've already got the Prius people all upset. I don't want an entire one of the two sexes upset with me as well. But she's all kidding aside. She's really good because what she's saying is, all right, you're going to step in and intervene. And you are going to spare my son in, in this situation. I don't want you to make an emotional decision, David. I don't want you to do it because you feel I've manipulated you here at all. My family bears the responsibility for this sin and this problem. I'm not trying to give you this problem. I only want you to judge in this situation what you are comfortable judging and that your name will be guiltless. She gives him an opportunity to say, there's nothing I can do here. If the law is the law, it's just got to happen. This is the way that it's going to come down. So she gives him plenty of room to back out. The king said, whoever says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall not touch you anymore. So he gives uh, the promise of, of the protection of, of the whole uh, you know, royalty of, of Israel. And then she said, please let the king remember the Lord, your God, and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And she said, and he said, as the Lord lives, I mean, he's, he's really engaged in this now. As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And David gives his promise that he's going to take care uh, of, of this woman, that he is protected, uh, her, that surviving son is protected by a royal decree. Well, the woman has everything she needs now to pull the trap on, on David. And so the woman said, um, listen, one more thing. <laughs> It's a little nicer in the King James. Uh, please let your maidservant speak another word to my lord, the king. So he gives her permission. Say on. And the woman said, why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king, the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty in that the king does not bring his banished one, that is Absalom, home again. Now, David had to... Uh, Probably when he's listening to this whole thing and this mother talking about the one son is now dead and the other son is as good as dead. That's his scenario. One of his sons is dead. Amnon is dead. His other son is as good as dead. He's banished off in Syria. So, I mean, he's probably engaging a little bit emotionally and personally in what, what's going on here. But he doesn't get the full scope of what, what she's doing to him here. So... In verse 13, as she applies this, she plainly confronts David with being inconsistent with his ruling concerning her son and his treatment of his own son, Absalom, concerning the killing of his brother, Amnon. In other words, she's saying if he could extend grace or pardon to her son, then why in the world couldn't he do the same thing to his own son? Isn't it interesting how often we are more gracious to strangers than we are to our own family? 
It's a perverse thing. It's a terrible thing. But but this is a bit of what what is going on. Now, apparently the nation, as she talks about all of this, how can you do this thing against the people of God? Apparently, David is concerned about the fact that if he brings back Absalom, who has killed the brother and and taking the law into his hands, that he is going to model lawlessness in front of the nation. David's David's a father in this situation, but he's a king, too. The father wants to bring the boy home. But the king can't just bring him home without something happening and then modeling before the whole nation. You can take uh, laws into your own hands and you can kill whoever you want in violation of the law of Moses. So he's kind of stuck here. But she informs him, in essence, you don't have to worry about what people are thinking out here. Everybody agrees with what Absalom did to Amnon. They all think you should have done taken care of business in order that he would have never been put in that place. Don't think anybody's, you know, looking too harsh on Absalom in, in, in the situation. They're not going to misunderstand any grace that you show in, into Absalom. They understand his motivation for killing Amnon. And then because Absalom's now the oldest son... They assume he's going to be the next king of Israel, and they felt it's time to get the next king of Israel back home to Israel. And then in verse 14, she gives him some advice. She's, oh, she's funky. She's something, this one. She said, David, for we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. You spill water on the ground in that Middle East. The water is just quickly, permanently absorbed by the soil. It is gone. Once it's, spoiled, once it's spilled, it is over. It is gone. And the point that she's making to David here is, David, your opportunity to reconcile with your son is very fragile. Is very, very finite. If either of you dies and life is fragile, then you will lose forever the opportunity to be reconciled in this life. Take advantage of the opportunity to reconcile that you have right now. I'll tell you, it's true of each and every one of us, whether some estrangement and with another family member, another Christian, another friend in life to realize that one day if they die or you die, the opportunity to reconcile is going to be completely gone. Do you have a son or daughter you need to reconcile with? Do you have a father or a mother that you need to reconcile with? A friend or another Christian that you need to reconcile with? Do you assume that they'll always be there? The opportunity will always be there week after week and month after month. I'll get to it. One day I'll do it. One day the opportunity will be gone. It's a finite opportunity. And so she speaks to this king, great wisdom with great boldness. David, if you're going to do this and it's in your heart to do it, don't think you're going to have forever to do it. What you got is right now. And you know what you need to do. And do it while you're both alive. She then goes on and says, yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. In other words, David is concerned that he is going to misrepresent the heart of God in showing a pardon to his son Absalom following this this murder. And she informs David that God finds every way that he can to show mercy in his dealings with men. And nobody knew that better than David knew that from his own experience. And nowhere is this fact that God works every way that he can to show mercy in his dealings with men. Nowhere is that more true than the cross of Christ. You think about the lengths that God has gone to in order to show mercy to guilty, condemned sinners. 
And she's communicating to David, David, you don't have to worry that in showing grace to your son here that you're going to misrepresent God. The fact of the matter is you won't be able to represent God in this situation until you have been extended grace. And David, of all the people in this kingdom, you should know that better than anyone else. And so don't worry about it, David. You're going to be like God if you do this kind of thing. You'll be like his him in his nature. And then she gives an explanation for why she came to talk to David and do this. David is aware of the fact that, you know, something is up here now. This isn't going the way these things are scheduled. And she said, now, therefore, I have come to speak of this thing to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. I was put up to this. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant, for the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. And your maidservant said, the word of my Lord, the king will now be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my Lord, the king, in discerning good and evil. And may the Lord, your God, be with you. Basically, what she's saying is, David, I know I've said some pretty forward things to you in this room. You just didn't talk to kings like this in the ancient world. You could have your head handed to you. So she's saying, David, I was put up to this. But I felt that you would be gracious in listening to the story that I would tell you. And you would get what it is that this is all about. And then she pronounces, it's beautiful at the end of verse 17, she pronounces the, uh, God's blessing upon him as he would do what it is that he has indicated that he ought to do with his son in light of how he sentenced this woman's son that didn't even exist in this hypothetical. And then the king answered and said to the woman, please don't hide from me anything that I ask you. And the woman said, please let my lord, the king, speak. And the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? I think David thought to himself, only Joab would be this brassy. I hope that's not like a terrible term. I'll look it up later. So, so to scratch that only he would be this bold as a relative and as the general, to come and get in my face in this way. And the woman answered and she said, As you live, my lord, the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord, the king, has spoken. You're so smart. This is getting a little schmoozy here now at this point. She's really flattering him and all. And uh, see, I mean, she's gone out on some thin ice. For your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant to bring about this change of affairs. Your servant Joab has done this thing, and my Lord is wise according to the wisdom of the angel of God to know everything that is on the earth. You are able to judge in a supernatural way. And the king then called Joab in. And he said, all right, I've granted this thing. I get what you're trying to say. And go, therefore, and bring back the young man, Absalom. Bring him back to Israel. And Joab fell to the ground on his face, and he bowed himself, and he thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. Joab wanted to do this as a favor to David out of his love for David. He saw how broken hearted he was. And, and, and yet David was just going to be content to just sit in this standoff, his son over here, him over here, and just the silent treatment. And so this was something Joab wanted to do. It shows us a soft side of Joab, which is always nice to see in him. So he's happy that it's worked because he knows it's a blessing to David. And so Joab arose and he went to Gesher and he brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Bring him here under this condition. Let him return to his own house, but he, he can't see my face. He'll have no audience with, with me. And so Absalom returned to his own house, but he didn't see the king's face. Now, all, in all of Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. And he was on all the tabloids. 
from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, head to toe. There's no blemish in him, not a mole, not a scar, not a pimple, not a crooked tooth, not a chipped tooth. This guy was just just good looking without exception. And, and from the head to toe, nobody like him. And when he cut his hair, cut the hair of his head at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. So he had annual haircuts when he cut it. He then weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels, according to the king's standard. And so he would have this annual haircut. He apparently had this very uh, thick, wonderful head of hair on top of all of these good looks. He just makes all of us sick. But anyway, this is uh, this is what he uh, uh, did here and, and, and what he had. And he would weigh it. And every year as his hair was cut, they would uh, they would weigh it and his hair weighed five pounds. That's a lot of hair. Five pounds. Now, I don't have anything wrong with an annual haircut. I think that's terrific. But I do have problems with men that then weigh their hair after they've had their hair cut. Something's wrong with a guy like that. So it's like, I don't want to follow in the battle where my life is going to be put at risk. A man who is so vain and so proud and self-absorbed that he weighs his hair after he cuts it. That is interesting, to be fair. I know I'm a little bit over. I'll only be another hour. But it is interesting that that. Attention to detail and personal and that kind. Wellington, the, the famous English general who was most famous for having defeated Napoleon. And uh, Wellington was a, every day he shaved, no matter where he was, no matter what the battle, no matter what the day held. He shaved very meticulous about his grooming. But it was an extension of his attention to detail and his discipline as a person. It was the things that made him great as a general that he carried over into his personal life. We don't see that kind of godly character here in, in Absalom, as we're going to see in the, not this week, but in, in the coming chapters. So he's a very, very uh, vain uh, person. And then Absalom, to Absalom were born three sons. Uh, we're going to read later on that, uh, that he is, at the end of his life, he has no sons, so apparently they died early in life. And he had one daughter who he named Tamar after his sister who had been defiled, expressing his love for her. And she was also a woman of beautiful appearance. And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. You know what? I'm going to stop right there because there's too much in these remaining verses that set up these incredible events that begin in chapter 15. So we'll just stop right there because I don't want to hurry through it and I don't want to keep you here uh, all night long as a result of it. It'll work just as fine the next time we get to it. So let's stand. The worship.